open your Bibles, everybody, to Titus chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the Pew Bible in front of you is uh, yours to use. It'll be page 1058. We are finishing up a series we've been talking for the last four weeks about who we are as a church. This is something that we've developed over the last couple of years to remind ourselves of every January. We've been talking about Revelation Church. Revelation Church is named after this idea that God reveals himself to people. We've got this little tagline in our marketing stuff that says God is not hidden We believe that we have a God that pursues people. And we've been saying that Revelation Church exists as a family of Jesus followers seeking to know him and make him known to the people of North Idaho and the nations through Jesus-made relationships, Jesus-focused discipleship, and Jesus-empowered service. And so two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus-made relationships and how the church should be a place where people who have nothing else in common but Jesus come together in these amazing united families and the world should look in and go like, what is going on in there? Last week, we talked about Jesus-focused discipleship. As we pursue God, as we pursue discipline and this relationship and these practices, our lights will shine and the world outside will see Jesus. And this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus-empowered service. So, in 1891, in London, there was a health crisis. It was a small health crisis, but it was a very specific health health crisis. There was a certain population that was coming down with a disease called Fossey Jaw. Fossey Jaw was a degenerative bone disease caused by prolonged exposure to toxic phosphorus. And it degraded the bones of the jaw, and it was incredibly painful and incredibly gross. And the only way to treat it was to just remove the jawbone, resulting in major disfigurement. People that were infected with Fossey Jaw were employees in matchstick factories. Many of them were women. Many of them were children. Because in matchmaking toxic phosphorus was used. A Christian church was made aware of this disease. That Christian church was called the Salvation Army. And they decided they were going to do something about it. There's a lot of things they probably could have done to address the problem. They could have created a hospital to treat the victims. They could have created a fund to raise money. But what they did was they opened a match factory. They started making matches on their own. They paid their workers double the going wage. They refused to hire children, and they used a non-toxic form of phosphorus to make their matches. I've got a picture here of some of their matches. Lights in darkest England. The top, it says, security from fire. Salvation Army was all about uh, puns. Fair wages for fair work. And they started selling matches. And what this did was it raised awareness for the conditions of workers in match factories, for the disease called Fossey Jaw, 
And within 10 years, child welfare regulations had been passed in England and toxic phosphorus had been banned throughout the country. Now, their factory failed because they weren't, uh, they were paying people too much and using expensive products and, and they closed it after 10 years, but that wasn't the point. The point was that they wanted, they saw a problem out in the world and because of their love for Christ, because of what they believed the world should look like in light of who Jesus is, they sought out to change it. What we're going to talk about this morning is the idea that the world sees God, the world understands a little better what Jesus is like when Christians pursue Jesus-empowered service. So in Titus chapter 3, Paul, the apostle, is writing to his protege, Titus. Titus is a pastor who is overseeing a group of churches on the island of Crete. And Paul is writing to Titus about how he should uh, be teaching these people, how he should be leading these people, how he should set them up for success in following Jesus. And we're going to look at two, thing, two ways that service comes into play here. Uh, service to the world, Jesus-empowered service, service to the world, and then service through the empowering work of Christ. So look at Titus chapter 3. Verse 1, remind them, remind the, the Cretans to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So this is really interesting, I think, because Paul, throughout the book of Titus, and especially in chapter 3, is talking about service. He's talking about good works, Christians going out into the community and helping others. And the first thing he brings up is the government. That's kind of weird. But I think the reason he brings up the government, and, and this, is, uh, this is a pretty uh, scary thing to say in North Idaho, but I think it's because the government ultimately is in the business of doing good works. And you might go, no, the government is the enemy. But if you really think about the point of the government, the point of why do we gather in a society and create structures, it's for the benefit of one another. It's for the benefit of the common good. And and if you don't believe me, Paul says something else in Romans chapter 13 that's very similar. You can turn there if you want. But Romans 13.1 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Jump down to verse 4. It is, for it is God's servant for your good. And then in verse 6, And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. The government is appointed by God to be a blessing for people, to do good works. And and Scripture is clear about this in the midst of a government that is a dictatorship. Rome was a dictatorship. They had taken over the island of Crete and subjugated its people. And Paul still says, submit to rulers and authorities. So what does this look like? He says, submit and obey. Submit and obey. We often, I think we frame the government as our adversary. 
the government is automatically the enemy. And I think we do ourselves a a disservice by doing that. I think that's a little short-sighted. Because I think the government in general is not out to get us. The government is out to serve us. And when we demonize the government or people in the government, I think that works against our witness as Christians. And I, I feel like in an election year, it's important to say, like, I don't think Donald Trump is out to destroy the country. But I don't think Bernie Sanders is out to destroy the country either. Now, you may believe that either one of those politicians' platforms is good or bad for the country, and it's worth debating that. We live in a society where we have the, uh, the, the right to participate in our system of government. But I think for the most part, the men and women that serve in our government don't sit up at night going like, how can we ruin the country? They think their vision of how things should go is for the common good. Our political enemies are not simply out to make mayhem. And I think our posture towards the government says a lot about our hearts as followers of Christ. And and Paul says, submit to rulers and authorities and obey them. Now, there's a caveat there, right? We have to say that if the government prohibits us from doing what God commands or if the government forces us to do what God forbids, we have to do what God says, right? Acts chapter four is a great example of this. Peter and John are out sharing the good news about Jesus. He is Lord, he is risen from the dead. He is the Messiah of Israel and they get arrested. And the religious leaders, the governing authorities say, hey, you need to stop telling people about Jesus. And Peter and John say, well, you decide, is it better for us to listen to God or listen to you? And then they went out and they, listen to God, and they continue to preach the gospel. But one thing that we need to remember is that if we are in a position where we feel like it is important to resist the government because the government is compelling us to do something that is against our conscience as Christians, we have to be prepared for the consequences of resisting the government. Peter and John didn't go, we're going to do what God says, and then they went back to the upper room and gathered everybody together and said, get your swords, everybody. We're going to rebel against Rome because they don't want us preaching the gospel. They didn't do that. They just, come what may, we're going to preach the gospel, and they reaped the consequences of that, imprisonment and persecution. But in general, Paul says, the government is here for our good, so submit to them, obey them, And he says, be ready, verse one still, the end of verse one, be ready for every good work. See, bringing up the government reminds us that we are part of a community. We are part of a group of people and we're called to be insiders in that community, not outsiders. Paul is calling us to be prepared for good works, to look out for good works, to find ways that we can love and serve our city. John Stott writes about this passage, it is not enough for Christians to be law-abiding, we are to be public-spirited as well. Another Salvation Army story, um, I was working for the Salvation Army in the, in the west, western part of the United States for the Croc Centers, 
And I was doing some video work down in Sassoon City, where they have a croc center. And, and I was working with their leadership team, their, their officer, their pastor there. And we were doing, you know, I was shooting basketball and rock wall stuff and art classes, all the stuff. If you're familiar with our croc center in Coeur d'Alene, you'd be familiar with the croc center in Sassoon City. They're pretty similar. And all of a sudden, a call came in. Hey, there's a fire down the street. A house is burning up in a neighborhood. And immediately, the pastor, the leader of the Croc Center, the officer with me said, okay, let's go. And we got in a van, and we drove to the fire, and we got these sweet, like, disaster vests, and we just went out, and we handed out bottled water, and we talked to people, and we prayed with people, and I filmed it all, because that was what I was there for. But see, the Salvation Army has decided that they are going to be ready for good works. They bought a truck specifically for when fires break out, for when disasters happen, so they can go out and serve people. It's not enough for Christians to be law-abiding. We are to be public-spirited as well. So what does that look like? Verse 2 Paul says, tell the Cretans, Titus, to slander no one and to avoid fighting. Now, those are passive commands. Those are, those are things that we can just kind of check off. I'm not going to yell at people. I'm not going to call them bad names, and I'm not going to fight. And maybe you're built in such a way that that's a struggle for you, and that's something that the Spirit of God is working on. But for many of us, that's, that's a really easy place to stop. Like, I'm not going to slander anybody and I'm not going to fight. I'm good. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues, and to be kind and always showing gentleness to all people. These are active commands. This requires us stepping into the lives of other people. In order to be kind, we have to get to know people. In order to be gentle, we have to be around people. We have to engage with people in need. And he says, to all people. He's talking about people outside the church. And I love this. It's almost as if he's anticipating an objection. Paul, don't you know what kind of people are outside the church? I can't be seen with them. Do you know what they're like? And then he says in verse 3, For we too were once foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Paul says, yeah, I know what the people outside in the world are like. We were just like that. We were exactly like them. Well, what happened? Well, this is where we go from service to the world to service through the empowering work of Christ. Look at verse 4. But, but is such an important word here. We were, we were all these things, Paul says in verse 3, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. We were just like everyone out in the world, but, Paul says, God saved us. In verse, verse 5, 
says he saved us according to his mercy. And the question is, do we deserve help from Jesus? No, we don't. We deserve judgment for sin. We deserve death for disobedience. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is God saying, this is, this is what I owe you. This is what justice demands, but I am not going to dispense that on you. I'm going to pardon you from that. And as Christians, I think, one, it's just people. We're okay with mercy when it's kind of deserved. Like if you get pulled over for going 28 and a 25, and the officer's like, I'm just going to give you a warning. And you're like, oh, mercy. And everybody's okay with that. That's great, officer. I appreciate that. But what happens when a murderer or a rapist or an abuser receives mercy from their victim? When they say, you know what? I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm going to forgive you. It kind of freaks everyone out. Well, don't do that. They deserve to be punished. And that's, that's the point, Right? Sky Jatani says, mercy is the most powerful and transformative when the person receiving it is the least deserving. The worse off you are, the more you deserve punishment, the greater mercy is. And for all of us, slaves to sin, deserving death, Christ's mercy on us is huge. It's great. but it doesn't stop there. He poured out his spirit on us, verse six, abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. We don't just get mercy. Mercy would be fine enough to say, oh, you're a criminal and you deserve punishment, but I'm not gonna punish you. Instead, we get grace. We get, not only am I not going to punish you, I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to make you one of my children. I'm going to justify you and, and, and shape you into a new creation and make you holy and perfect and good. I'm going to give you gift after gift after gift and blessing after blessing. We aren't just given mercy, we're given grace. Because see, Jesus... Jesus is our example of both passive and active good works. Passively, he, he gives us mercy. And actively, he gives us grace. But what Paul is showing us is more than that. He, he's not just our example. He is our ability. Verse 6 again, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Back in verse five, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Over and over and over again, these, these verses say that God is doing something in us. God is shaping us. God is creating us. God is remaking us into new creations. And if we are going to be people that give of ourselves in service to others, the only way that we're going to do that is if we are empowered by Christ who has first given himself to us. And I love, I love this section, these, these verses four through seven, 
Because when we're talking about good works, we talked about this last week when we were talking about discipleship, how, how we, we do not pursue discipleship through shame or guilt or fear. It just doesn't work. But if we talk about good works, hey, we should be out in the community serving people and loving people and giving ourselves away. It's easy to go like, I have to do good works because then God will love me. I have to do good works because I have to prove myself to God. But Paul shuts that down. In verse 5, he says, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. There is, in this discussion of good works, Paul says, good works can't save us. Good works can't make us right with God. Good works do not precede our salvation. They follow it. Because we have been given new life in Christ, we are equipped by his spirit to give back to the world. So how, how important is this? I mean, is this where like, you know, some people are called to good works as Christians. Other Christians are just called to read their Bibles. Other Christians are called to just hang out and have coffee. And there's like options that you can choose from this is like a, a buffet line of how do I want to follow Jesus? Is that what Paul is saying? That this is something that you could possibly do as a Christian? I don't think so. Look at verse 8. First of all, he says, this saying is trustworthy. This is, this is really interesting. Paul is talking about verses 4 through 7. If you've ever read Titus 3, 4 through 7 and thought, you know, that's kind of poetic, the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not by works of righteousness, which we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. I was in Awana as a child, and that was one of the passages we memorized. When Paul says this saying is trustworthy, he's saying that this is a creedal statement. If you're not familiar with that word, a creedal statement is something that the early Christians came up with before the New Testament was written. And you find these all throughout the New Testament. Paul quotes a lot of them. They would have been short sayings before the New Testament was written down for the Christians to memorize, to help them understand doctrine. Um, really famous 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says this is the gospel that's a creedal statement. There's one in um, 2 Timothy. They're, all, they're scattered throughout. And what Paul is saying is he, he didn't write those verses. He's quoting them. And he knows that the Christians know these words because it's an early Christian poem. It's an early Christian song. It's something that they would have, and it probably rhymes in Greek. I don't know. But it's something they would have memorized And the question for us is, what do, what do we memorize? I mean, maybe we don't memorize anything because we all have smartphones now, but when we didn't have smartphones, we memorized things that were important to us. And so Paul, by, by saying that this saying is trustworthy, he is telling us that these verses are something worth memorizing, worth remembering, worth having in your heart. This saying is trustworthy. He says, I want to you, Titus, to insist on these things. Insist. You have these churches, these new Christians in Crete, and I want you to insist that they are people who, by the empowering work of God, do good works in their community. This is something that the Christians in Crete need to be doing. 
I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful. Be careful. Every single day, I tell my youngest daughter to be careful. It just comes out of my mouth because she's never careful. She's always running through the house with something sharp and something heavy and something breakable all at the same time. And she's going to, you know, hit her head on the kitchen island or slip on the floor, drop a dish, or there's something terrible is going to happen. Nora, be careful. Notice the hazards around you. Pay attention to what you're doing. What are the pitfalls that are preventing us from practicing good works? Where do we need to be careful? Is our schedule just out of control? Are we, are we biased? Well, I couldn't help those people. There are certain kind of people that I don't associate with. Maybe it's just your lack of observation. I've, I've tried to get in the habit of not taking my phone out of my pocket when I'm bored, like when I'm standing in line at the grocery store, because it's really easy to just start doing whatever and kind of zone in and lose the world around you. But if you pay attention, you start to see things. And maybe they're not big things, maybe they're no, not world-changing things, but you start to understand people a little bit better when you just pay attention. What are the things that we need to be careful of to help us serve others? Not only are we to be careful, he says, be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word devote, Paul uses other places in his letters to talk about being a manager, being a leader having charge over something. A long time ago, I was the general manager of Qdoba Mexican Grill, America's favorite authentic Mexican restaurant. And uh, I did things that other employees didn't do. I would stay there late at night counting avocados because we needed to know how many avocados there were every single week. I would put a scale at the end of the assembly line and weigh everyone's burritos, and they hated that. But they had to come in at a certain weight because we had to make sure our food cost was right. See, I was devoted to Qdoba because I was the manager. I was in charge. I had a job to do that was bigger than just showing up. And Paul tells Titus to tell the people of Crete to be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. See, when, when we're living out our lives as Christians, the way we're supposed to live them, the places we live will benefit. By actively pursuing serving others, engaging in good works, our city is going to get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. Our city is going to get a glimpse of what the love of Jesus feels like. And this is one more way that God chooses to reveal himself to the people of Coeur d'Alene when his people step out and serve. So, 
as we close, where does that put us as a church? What boots on the ground? What what are we like at Revelation Church? And and I have to admit that this is a this is something that I think we can grow in. I think individually we're called to live lives of good works, and many of you talk about the the, the interactions that you have with people and the things you're involved in, and praise God for that. But I also think as a community we have a responsibility to do good works together. And the leadership of this church, the elders of this church, have a responsibility, Ephesians 4 says, to equip us all for the work of the ministry. And since John's an elder now, I can blame him for things that go wrong, which is great. (laughs) No, but for the last couple years, we've really been wrestling with what does it look like to be the church in Coeur d'Alene? What does it look like for us to serve people in Jesus' name. And we've dabbled here and there, but now we're, we're entering in, this is our third year as a church. And I think this is the year that we're really gonna be able to lay into what this question is asking of us. What does it mean to serve God's people in Coeur d'Alene? And we're gonna pursue that. And we're gonna, we're gonna see what the needs are and ask God to open our eyes and, and ask all of us to sacrifice for the good of our city. And so as we close, I want to give, there's four ways that we have right now that we can serve our city with a couple different partners. And I think there's going to be more, but I want to put them before you. And some of them you've heard before, some of them maybe are new. The first two have to do with Bryan Elementary. I've talked a little bit before about Bryan Elementary. Bryan Elementary is just up the road. It's one of the... um, most at-risk populations of grade school children in our area. And they have asked us if we would be willing to just show up and love on their kids, specifically at recess, Monday through Friday, around the lunch hour, anyone who wants to go and hang out with grade schoolers, they would love to have the help. Because many of these kids come from home situations that are really rough, and just to have an adult bringing value to their lives by spending time with them is a huge blessing. And the counselor at Brian has just opened the floodgates for us to come and serve. And I know that doesn't work for everyone, but if it's a possibility, if you, if you have a lunch hour at work and you can sneak away one day a week, or if, if you're at home with the kids and you feel like you could bring them. They said you can bring your children. I would highly encourage you to get involved. I go on on Fridays. I show up at noon at lunch. I go out into the playground and hang out with second and third graders until 1245 when their bell rings. And then I leave, I go back to work. And almost every time I'm there, I get asked the same question whose dad are you? And I say, I'm, I'm not anybody's dad. Why are you here? <laughs> Just because I want to play with you guys. And that's enough. And they're like, sweet. <laughs> Last week, we made snowballs and threw them at a target they had set up. Like for 45 minutes, I made snowballs. It was, it was not hard. But the half a dozen kids that I got to hang out with just loved it and they were validated and they felt cared for. 
And I would just highly encourage you to get involved that way. Another opportunity from Brian, they're starting an after-school program after spring break. Spring break is at the end of March. And they're looking for individuals who are passionate about something to come in once a week for four weeks from 3.30 to 4.30 and teach a class to their kids. So maybe you're a woodworker. Maybe you are a musician. Maybe you're an artist. Maybe you're really into spreadsheets. I don't know. If you have something that you think you could share with the kids, they would love it. And Brian is, I, I, I asked um, Isaac at Brian, what, give me some parameters. And he goes, it doesn't matter. Just come in and, and teach the kids something. Because they so desperately want adult role models to pour into the lives of these children. The second organization that we've just started working with is, is a nonprofit called Love, Inc. Love, Inc. is a uh, organization that kind of collaborates with area churches and provides resources for people in need. And they don't, they don't focus on handouts. They don't focus on um, real quick social service. They focus on relationships. And so when somebody comes to Love, Inc. and they say, you know, I can't pay my bills or I uh, lost my job or, or whatever their circumstances are, that, that conversation always starts with prayer. It starts with relationship. It starts with making a friend, telling people that, that Jesus' people care about you. Tell me your story. Let me figure out how we can be helpful. And they, they bring people through this intake process and figure out what their needs are in whatever situation that looks like. And then they partner with the churches in our community to help meet those needs. The way that they have asked us to participate is that they have, um, they're in need of home goods, uh, detergent, diapers, toilet paper, things like that. They've asked if we would put together a pantry of those goods that they can write a voucher to their clients for and they can come down and get some of the things that they need from us. We can use that opportunity to share the love of Christ with them, pray with them, be part of their story as they walk back to financial security or relational um, health or whatever it is they're struggling with. And a variety of different churches all around the city are providing different aspects of relief for these men and women that are um, working their way back to health. So what we have today at both doors is a little shopping list of stuff. And so if you have the opportunity and the means to take one of those lists and go to the store and get some of that stuff and bring it back to stock our pantry. That would be greatly helpful. The second way that Love, Inc. has asked us to help is a little more um, time-consuming, but the, the first thing that happens when you uh, go to Love, Inc. for need is a phone call. You give them a call and you talk to a counselor, and that counselor asks you questions and gets to know you and prays for you. And Love, Inc. is looking for counselors. 
So may, maybe you have half a day once a week where you, you could answer phones and talk to people and share the love of God with them and, and write down their information and, and help connect them to the services that they need. And Love, Inc. is uh, equipped and willing to train everyone that volunteers for them. But if that sounds like something that you might be gifted and called to do, I would highly encourage you to be involved in that way because that's like front lines work with the needy in our community. So here's my challenge to us as Revelation Church in the beginning of 2020. We want to be people that make Jesus known through Jesus-empowered service. So the first thing is get the Jesus-empowered part right. Get to know Christ. Spend time in the Word. Be among His people. Be Allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. And from that, let that flow out into service to the community. And get involved. If, you're, if you don't feel, like, and only you can answer the question of, of whether or not you are living this kind of life. But if you feel like you're not, I've got four opportunities right there. Grab a shopping list and go get some detergent. If you want, if you feel like you're being called to, to volunteer at the elementary school, if you feel like you have a, a gift that you can share with some kids for like four weeks in the spring, if you, if you feel like you could be a counselor at Love, Inc. And, and answer the phones and talk with people through their need, fill out a connect card. Say, I want more information about this. I would love to get involved. And we'll connect you. And then as we continue to, to pursue what it looks like to follow Jesus this way, be ready. Like, like Paul says, be, be ready for every good work because we're gonna, be, we're gonna be finding some good works to do. We're gonna be resourcing with other nonprofits. We're gonna be uh, getting our heads up and, and, and listening to what the need is in our community. And we're gonna be pursuing ways to show the love of Christ to Coeur d'Alene through Jesus-empowered service. So we're going, to, uh, we're going to take communion like we always do every Sunday. And we take communion because Jesus told us to. <laughs> but the reason we, he told us to is because it's a reminder. It's a reminder of what he's done in our hearts and our lives. He, had, he went to the cross. He took our sin on himself, he paid the penalty, death, on our behalf. And he rose to new life, and he implants new life in us. And by remembering the bread as a symbol of his body and the, the juice or the wine as a symbol of his blood, it reorients our heart after a week of who knows what. I think everybody I talked to this morning said last week was crazy. Use this as an opportunity to just reorient your heart. What's, what's the most important thing? What's, what's going on in your life that needs to be viewed through the cross of Christ, through the mercy and grace of God? Let that refresh you. Let the Spirit of God minister to you because if we walk out of here excited about serving God without first being empowered by Christ, we are going to fail. 
But if we allow ourselves to love our city as an outflowing of the love that Christ has showed us, starting at the cross and continuing every day, I think God will be glorified and and we will be blessed. Let's pray. God, thanks for an opportunity to open your word, to be challenged, to be about your business. God, I, I confess that this kind of thing is hard for me. I can, I can wrap my mind pretty easily around reading my Bible and attending church gatherings and, and things like that, but going out into the community and, and, and serving seems scary and hard, out of my comfort zone. God, I just pray that, that as we wrestle with how well or not we are representing you in this city, you wouldn't allow us to hear the voice of the enemy that brings guilt and shame, but that you would allow us to hear the voice of the spirit that brings mercy and grace and comfort and peace and excitement. God, if we really believe that you are who you say you are and you've invited us on this mission that we've been invited on, this is the most exciting adventure the world has to offer. I just pray that as we take baby steps as a a young church to serve our city in Jesus' name, that you would help us stand and guide our steps and give us vision and then the name of Jesus would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.